talking about what life will look like in the kingdom of God and, and how we should try and make it look like that today in our own lives. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about uh, being light in a culture of darkness. <clears throat> so we get a picture of the kingdom of God in, in the book of Revelation. In chapter 22 it says that night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Now you can take that literally and maybe it, it is literal that we won't need any light in the new heavens and new earth and God will light everything up for us. But if you read the whole chapter, you realize that what's being talked about here is that evil will be done away with forever. You know, we, we uh, understand these contrasting themes of, of darkness and light. They're used pretty consistently in the Bible where darkness is used to represent evil and light is used to represent good. And thankfully, our culture still uses darkness and light in these ways. So I don't have to do much convincing to help you understand what the Bible is talking about when it uses the themes of light and darkness. Uh, but this picture of a world without darkness, a world without evil, is certainly not what our world looks like today. I mean, we're all well acquainted with how dark our world is to some degree or another. And despite the fact that practically every culture in the world has ever seen, uh, has had some system that celebrates good and punishes evil, the world is still a horribly dark place. And, and that's because that, that we, we love evil to some degree. You know, we hate it when we see it done to us or those we care about, but, but if we can do something that, that benefits ourselves, and it might bend the rules a little bit, we're way more willing to do that. And another reason for that is because that we shift the meaning of good and evil. You know, Grant talked about this in the second sermon of this series where we need to set a good foundation, where our foundation should be God's word. Because God is the one who determines good and evil, and when we redefine it, that's when the greatest tragedies in human history happen. So this whole sermon series has really been talking about being light and darkness in one way or another. And, and today, I want to specifically focus on exposing the works of darkness. So, you know, we've talked about sexual purity, we've talked about rest in a culture of busyness, we've, we've talked about commitment, we've talked about all these different things, and a lot of those impact our lives, and to some degree the lives of those around us, but really they've been internal. You know, what do we do? And that's still very much the case today, but what do we do when the world around us is doing something so evil that it's hurting people? Let's look to the scripture. So we're going to be in Ephesians 5 today. Before we go through that, let's go ahead and pray. God, I'm grateful for this, <clears throat> this time we have to come together and study your word, this time that we have to gather as the body of the church, to share in fellowship with one another. God, I'd ask that your word would impact us. I'd ask that you would help us to be light and darkness. And God, that as we look at the dark world around us, we wouldn't be discouraged, but instead we would see the opportunity to bring your light into it. So God be with us today as we, as we study your word and, and we look at being light in darkness. Amen. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Ephesians 5, starting in verse 6. I'll, I'll have it up on the screen to start, but I'll be referring back to it, and it won't be on the screen then. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians, fix, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up sleeper and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now in this passage, Paul has just concluded a section contrasting how the world acts and how Christians should act. He ends this section with this passage here, and it's an admonition to to not be part of the darkness like we once were, but to instead expose it so that people may come to Christ. And there's four key instructions in this passage I want to highlight. The first is this, don't fall for their empty arguments. Now, because our culture loves darkness, we have come up with many justifications for it. Some of them are very convincing, but we need to stand strong in our knowledge of the truth and be willing and ready to call good good and evil evil. And we need to be careful not to believe these arguments so that we don't do number two, that we don't partner in darkness. Now, because our culture has confused good and evil in many areas, people often get confused when we don't want to participate in their evil. And oftentimes, they encourage us to take part in the evil they do because they don't understand that it's wrong. Now, Grant preached on sex two weeks ago, and if you live according to God's sexual ethic, you'll confuse some people. And quite often, they will try to tell you that you're wrong and give you reasons why you should join them in their sin. God says we should not partner with them in the wrong that they do, and instead we're called to do three, walk in light. Paul describes walking in light as pursuing goodness, righteousness, and truth, and desiring to find what is pleasing to God. And when we walk in light, we begin to remove the darkness from our lives, and in a small degree, from the world around us. You know, as people begin to see the light, they begin to desire it, they begin to walk a little bit more at times in the light. But we aren't just told to stop there. Paul goes a step further, and he says that for we should expose the works of darkness. So not only should we refuse to be partners in darkness and walk in light, we are called to expose the works of darkness. Now, the purpose and strategy of revealing the works of darkness to the people around us is shown in the last two verses, where Paul says that we shine light on the darkness to make visible the evil in the hope that the sleeper will wake and the dead will rise, which is a way of saying people will accept the grace of God and become Christians. So when we expose the works of darkness, our hope is twofold. First, that we bring more light into the world and see less pain and evil, less death and suffering in our present age. And secondly, and more importantly, that more would come to Christ. Now, this is just the introduction to my sermon. What my sermon is really about is an area in which our culture has absolutely substituted darkness for light, where we have called evil good. And taking these these four instructions that we see in these passages, I want to take this idea of exposing the works of darkness in the hope of seeing more light in the world, in the hope of seeing more come to Christ, and specifically focus on that issue. And that is the issue of abortion. Abortion is an evil that our culture calls good, and it happens on a scale unlike any other issue in today's culture. Since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, at least, at least 50 million abortions have been performed in this country alone. For reference, that's less, a little less than the population of South Korea. Right around. 
50 million. Now I want to start and say I understand. I understand this topic is controversial. I understand this topic is emotional, that there's a lot of emotions and, and, and complexity tied up in this. And many of you may be uncomfortable or even upset to hear me preaching on it. So I want to get a few things out of the way before I teach on this in earnest. And the first is this. This is a, this is a common pushback you hear, and it's that only women can talk on this issue. And this is a point that you hear very often when men speak up on the pro-life side, but, but here's the thing. What's right and wrong is true regardless of who says it. I could have had a woman come up here and read my notes, make all the same arguments that I'm going to make, use the same slides that I'm using, say every single word that I'm going to say, and it would be no more or less true than if I said it. Now, if for some reason you refuse or you just really do not want to hear a man speak on the pro-life issue, then that's okay. There's plenty of women who speak on this. Here's a few that I want to name, and they're up on the slides. Stephanie Gray, Abby Johnson, Kristen Hawkins, Lila Rose, Alexandra DeSanctis, Dr. Patty Giebink. Many of the women in our church, many of the women in the world stand on this side. If you want to hear what they have to say, I encourage you to seek them out. Second, perhaps you think the issue of abortion is simply a political issue. This is an issue for politicians. This is an issue for lawmakers. It shouldn't be in a sermon. It's just too political. Now, while this is an issue that is being fought on the political stage, in the courts, and in the legislature, that does not mean it is not a moral issue of injustice. Let me say up front, just to, just to let you all know, I won't be advocating for any particular candidate or party in this sermon, or even giving really any direct advice on what political steps you should take regarding the issue of abortion. Now, I do want to clarify, I don't think that's wrong to do in a sermon. But I do think if you're going to do that, you need to take care and time to do that. And I already made promises that I wouldn't preach for more than two hours, so we're going to cut back on that. <laughs> Third, maybe, like many Christians, you believe that the pro-life position is predicated entirely on the Christian faith. And as a kind and respectful person, you don't want to put your, force your religion on others. I understand that desire. It's, it's a good desire to not want to force your religion on others. I mean, we don't want to go out and kidnap people and force them down into the baptismal tank and say that they're saved, because that's not how this works. And I, I especially understand this because this is often how the other side characterizes those who stand on the pro-life side. And, and while we shouldn't be trying to forcibly make converts, we shouldn't be pursuing justice in the world. Just take this as an example. Imagine that we lived in a, in a country where sex slavery was not only legal, but accepted. Now, fear of being called religious zealots because we believe that sex slavery is an absolute evil, so fear of being called religious zealots shouldn't stop us in that culture and country from pursuing justice. The same is true with this. Now, because I am preaching a sermon, this is a sermon, we're in a church, I will take a lot of time to give the biblical case against abortion. But I'm also going to lay out a bit of the secular and scientific case against abortion, and I assure you that that case is wrong. So even with, the, with these things out of the way, I know that some of you are going to be uncomfortable during the sermon. I'm normally never nervous to get up here and talk. Public speaking has not really been an issue for me for most of my life. Thank the Lord for that. But I'm nervous today. I'm uncomfortable up here. Abortion is one of the most divisive topics in our country right now, and understandably so. 
So I understand the level of discomfort that we all are feeling. I'm going to do my best to navigate this topic thoughtfully and graciously, and all while trying to keep my emotions in check. And I want to encourage you to do the same. And just to listen to what it is that I have to say. After the sermon, if you want to find me and, and discuss or argue or tell me that I'm wrong, I'll be in the back. You can talk to me. We can pray. We can discuss. I'm open to that. But for now, I just want to ask you to open your heart to what the Scripture has to say, open your mind to what the science has to say, and just hear me on this. All right, so let's, let's get into this. So the first thing we should do in, in a situation like this, where we've got a, a divisive topic, is we should try and define what it is we're talking about. So what is abortion? Great question that we should start asking. Well, there's a growing argument and effort to obscure the definition of abortion. I was going to go into it, but to save time, I won't. And I'll just give you my definition. That way, when you hear me talk about abortion for the rest of the sermon, this is what I mean. This is abortion. It is the intentional termination of the unborn, whether through surgical, pharmaceutical, or other methods. So when I say abortion, that's what I mean. Now, the reason I want to define abortion is because there are instances of things being called abortions that are not what I'm talking about when I say the word abortion. For example, this one is pretty common, the, the termination of an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pregnancy where the, the unborn, it implants outside the uterus. The, the unborn, it's supposed to implant inside the uterus, that's where it grows, that's, the uterus is designed for that, to expand and accept that growing child. Now, most often this happens in the fallopian tube. If that happens there, it poses a serious risk to the woman's life and health. And now, this is different from what I'm talking about when I say abortion, because abortion is intentional termination of the unborn. What's the intention of this procedure? The intention of this procedure is to, not to terminate the unborn child, but it's to save the life of the mother. Now, with our current medical technology, and I say current because I work in the biomedical industry making surgical devices, so I have hope that one day we can save the unborn and reimplant them somewhere else. But currently, we cannot do that. There's nothing we can do to save them. So our, our, our purpose is to save the mother. The sad and very emotional effect of that is that the, the, the unborn child loses its life as well. So this isn't what I'm talking about when I say abortion. And there's many other cases like that. But I just want to be clear. So when I say the word abortion, this is what I mean. All right, now I feel we've got a good foundation. Let's, let's get into this. That Ephesians 5 passage, it, the, the first thing it told us was not to fall for their empty arguments. So I want to engage with the arguments and provide some arguments of our own. I'm going to engage this issue from three foundations. The first is the biblical foundation. What does the Bible have to say on this? The second is the scientific foundation. What does science have to say on this? And the third is the emotional foundation. How, now, what about these emotional hard cases? How can we engage with those? All right, so let's, let's get into the Bible. So I'm going to open with uh, what's called a syllogism. So real quick, just what a syllogism is, it, it's, a, it's a way of streamlining your argument. So it involves a few premises. I've got a few premises on the next slide and then a conclusion. Um, so I use this biblical syllogism on abortion as an example. Good, I do have it up there. So here's my first premise. The Bible says that human life has innate value. We should all agree on that, I would hope. My second premise, the Bible says it's wrong to take an innocent human life. Again, that's something I hope we can all agree with. I shouldn't need to do much to convince you of that. 
Third, this is the one where we'll probably need to do the most work. The unborn are described in the Bible as innocent human life. So for the conclusion, you take all three of those things that I just said, combine them, what is that, what's the conclusion? What, are, what does that mean? Well, my conclusion is this, the killing of the unborn is wrong according to the Bible. This conclusion combines the premises I have and I, it does so in a way that I believe is logical. And so I think we can all agree that if human life has innate value, it's wrong to take human life, and if the unborn are human life, then it's wrong to take their lives because of their innate value. Let's take a quick survey in the Bible to see what it has to say on the topic of abortion, and then we'll, we'll get into some, some arguments that support abortion using the Bible that I've heard from Christians. So, first this, human life has value. We've, we've talked about this passage a little bit. Uh, Genesis 1, 27. Uh, do I have 26 and 27? Yeah, I've got 26 and 27 up there. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Here we see God sets humanity apart from the rest of creation. We're different from the plants. We're different from the animals. We're different from the rocks. We're made in his image. That means something special. I don't have the time to get into and explain what that is, but we'll just say we're special. Next, it's wrong to take innocent human life. Genesis 9, 6 talks about this. It says, whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. But here we see that being made in, in God's image elevates our status. And taking our lives, that's a serious issue because of the innate value we have as humans. Now, the, the third premise, the one I want to spend the most time on, that's that the unborn are described as human lives in the Bible. This uh, verse is used, or this passage is used very often, Psalm 139. Uh, it's used very often for a reason, so I'm going to go ahead and read it. For you created my innermost parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my formless substance, and in your book were written all the days that are, were ordained, ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So here we see the psalmist describing being created and knit together in his mother's womb. We see that God has a care and a purpose for the unborn when he's knitting them together in the mother's womb, as it's being described here in this, this wonderful poetic language in, in Psalm 139. Um, another passage that's used very often is a passage in Luke 1. You've probably heard it before if you've heard anyone speak on this topic. That's where uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Both of them are pregnant at that time. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, Mary pregnant with Jesus. And when Mary comes into the room, Elizabeth feels John the Baptist leap inside of her and says that it's because the Spirit of, came on him and, and was excited to be in the presence of Jesus. So here we see two unborn children being treated as, as, as humans, as things of value. Now, it's wrong to kill the unborn. We see a passage here in Exodus 21 that, that would seem to indicate that killing a child in the womb should be treated as murder. Here's what it says, starting in verse 22. It says, Now, if people struggle with each other and strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely, but there is no injury... The guilty person shall certainly be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge, judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint a penalty 
life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, it seems to be indicated here is that if a couple of guys get in a fight and they knock into a pregnant woman and she goes into premature labor, if that child is born, has no issues, the, the guy, the men who knocked into her or the men who knocked into her have to pay a fine. But if that child is born with injury or dies, then they need to be treated as though they, they assaulted or killed a person. That life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's a, something that you see in the a Mosaic law that's described as how judges should punish those who harm other people. Now, I do want to add that there is a bit of debate over the interpretation of this passage, because when it says, if there is no injury or if there is further injury, we don't see the direct object of what is being injured. Now, it would seem to indicate that because it's talking about a pregnant woman, and not just a woman getting knocked into, that it's the child. And there's a good core of scholars who agree with me on that. But I, I do want to be clear. I don't want to present a false argument. With all that together, biblically, we should be able to say that the unborn have innate value. They're humans. It's wrong to kill them. Now, I understand that this might not be convincing enough um, because we don't have a direct passage, a direct verse in the Bible that says, do not abort your child. Now, to be fair, we don't have a lot of uh, direct passages on every single sin. That's not how the Bible works. We don't have a direct passage that says, don't murder someone with a gun. We do understand that murder is wrong. Now, when I, when I see an issue and I study it biblically, I want to give you just a little piece of advice. I think I'm, yeah, I'm doing well on time, so I'm adding a little bonus thing here. Uh, when I st study an issue, I, I go through about it three ways if it's a controversial issue. The first thing I look for in the Bible, this is the biggest and most important thing, is there a direct verse or, or, or passage that says this thing is right or this thing is wrong? Now, it does seem that Exodus 21 would qualify for that, but maybe not. We'll leave that one open to debate for this purposes of this Second is, let's look at examples. Do we have any examples of where this happens? Do we have any uh, shading context around here where maybe it's not saying this is directly wrong, but it is showing it happening and people are being punished or rewarded by God or by God's people accordingly? Now, I do think we see that here as, as things are talked about. And let me, let me be clear. I did a very brief survey of the scriptures on talking about the unborn um, I considered throwing up a slide that had all the different verses, but I didn't want to add any more time. But the second, I do believe we have some, some people who, or some passages that give a clear example that we see what's going on. And third is we should look at what, what, the, what has the church historically said? You know, what has the church done? Is, is there a very solid consensus that's been out for thousands of years? Is this something that popped up in the year 1700 and went away 20 years later? You know, these things are important. Now, obviously, church history is less important than direct teaching. Let's kind of treat it like a pyramid of what's more important than the rest. Now, we actually have something very fascinating on this that does speak directly against abortion. In the first or second century, there's this document that's written. It's called the Didache. It was written by the early Christians. Didache is Greek for the teaching. This is basically like if I were to write a real quick summary of what the gospel is and what the Bible teaches and hand it out for people to read so they could understand that's what the Didache essentially was. And it has lists of things you should do, lists of things you shouldn't do, along with summaries of the gospel and how the church should uh, practice. And in that list of things you shouldn't do, it says literally, 
Let me have the quote right here. You shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill a child at birth. And this theme has been consistent throughout a majority of church history. There are many church fathers who have held that abortion is wrong. And certainly there have been groups that have popped up here and there that have disagreed, but you can see a pretty consistent theme, especially starting from the beginning. So with that in mind, I think we can say pretty firmly that the Bible supports and affirms that the unborn have, have innate value, that they're human lives, and it's wrong to take them. But, but let's look at some pushback. Right? Let's, let's look at some counter-arguments. Uh, the first comes from Numbers 5. This is the most common argument I've heard that uses the Bible to support the practice of abortion. Now, for the sake of time, I can't go into a great deal of depth explaining this passage. There's a lot to get into because it's numbers, and they go into great detail about everything. But I'll cover the important parts. So the whole passage is Numbers 5, 11 through 31, if you want to read that later. I'll give a brief summary of what's going on here. So in the book of Numbers, there's a lot of laws that are given out, a lot of practices. Sometimes it's for the priests, sometimes it's for the people. This is a ritual for when a man suspects that his wife has cheated on him, but he lacks evidence. So he didn't walk in on her cheating with another man. He, he maybe thinks he's got, maybe he's got good reason, maybe he's got no reason, but he's suspicious and jealous that his wife is cheating on him. So what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to bring his wife to the priests, to the tabernacle, uh, with an offering. She then participates in a ritual where the offering is given and it's presented to the Lord. A cup is filled with the water kept in the tabernacle, what they call the holy water. They use that for some of their rituals in the tabernacle when sacrificing, uh, making sacrifices to the Lord. And then they take a little bit of dust off the tabernacle floor, sprinkle it into the cup of water. The woman uh, is given the cup of water. She's made to recite an oath saying, if I didn't cheat, nothing will happen to me. If I did cheat, a curse will come on me. Drinks the cup, and they wait to see what the effect is. If she cheated, the curse comes on her. She has a bodily effect. If she didn't cheat, nothing happens. The husband can go home rest, resting assured that his wife has, in fact, not cheated on him. So I'm going to read a selection of the passage here, starting in verse 23. It says this, The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll. That's the oath that she's supposed to take and the curses that come with it. And he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. So he's written on the scroll. Now we've, not only do we have dust in this cup of water, but now we've got a little bit of ink in the cup of water too, or whatever it was they were using to write, probably charcoal. That would be the most common thing they would have back then. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness. That brings a curse. So the water, which brings a curse, will go into her and cause bitterness. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering as its reminder offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward, he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it will come about, if she has defiled herself and been unfaithful to her husband, that the water, which brings a curse, will go into her and cause bitterness, and her belly will swell up and her thigh will shrivel. Or the literal Hebrew there is that her thigh will fall away. And the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will be immune and conceive children. The woman, she swears this oath, she drinks the water. If she's not cheated, nothing happens. If she does, then her, her abdomen swells, her belly swells, and her thigh shrivels or it falls away, as it says literally in the Hebrew. So what's going on here? Well, first, let's look at what's not happening here. This has often been used to say, Oh, this woman gets the, the priest, he turns around, he gets some herbs and makes this drug that the woman drinks and she has an abortion because she got pregnant sleeping with the other man. Uh, that's, that's not happening here. 
they did have herbs, uh, they'll do today, that you can take and are poisonous and will kill the child inside of you. But water with dust and a bit of charcoal ink won't do that. You can drink dirty water and your child won't die, as long as the water isn't filled with poison. But that's not what's happening here. There also isn't any direct mention of a pregnancy or a miscarriage. We don't see, you know, and the, the child shall come out of the womb dead, or we don't see that, and fluid shall flow out of her. We don't see that she's pregnant. There's nothing there around this really making the scene that she's pregnant. Now, certainly, if you know how baby, where babies come from, she could be. She slept with another man. Now she's presented here. She could be. But there's no indication that this is what this is for. So what it seems to be, what this ritual really is about, is when a husband is jealous, rather than beating his wife or sending her away, he can take her before the Lord and find out. Now that language around the, the curse, the abdomen swelling up and the thigh falling away, um, I'm not entirely sure what it means because there's a bit of figurative language happening there. Uh, but it, it's, the thing about the thigh is it also could be used to reference to sex organs, so maybe there's some issue there. But again, this is not describing an abortion ritual. It's describing a jealousy ritual. The next argument is this argument of insolment. Uh, the concept of insolment, it's the process of a human uh, receiving their soul. And so the argument goes like this. We don't know when someone gets their soul, and really it's the soul that has the value. That's the argument. But the argument fails in a few places. First, it makes a lot of bad assumptions about the body and the soul. God cares about the body. We're not just spiritual beings. We're not just ghosts inside this flesh suit operating it who will be pulled out and made to exist spiritually eternally. There's a resurrection coming. God cares about our bodies. We're going to get new ones. We're going to get new physical bodies. Next, and this is, this is what I consider to be the big failure, is that if we don't know when someone gets a soul, then why risk killing them? We wouldn't apply the same kind of ignorant violence in other places. For example, let's say that I'm in charge of demolishing a building. We've got it lined with the explosives. I've got the demolition button in my hand. I ask the safety team, is there someone inside? Is it empty? And they say, I don't know. Do I hit the switch? No, we go in and we be certain before we hit the switch. The same should apply here. So the purpose of this series has been to address important and controversial issues in our culture today and to help us think rightly about them, which we do by looking to God and his word to determine what is good and just. Now, the arguments I just went through, the support I add, the counter-arguments I took apart, are really the ones that matter most because they're rooted in God's word. But I understand those outside the faith don't care about God's word. They're not compelled by it. They don't believe in it. And maybe you personally are craving a little more. So, I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to move on to our next section, science. What does science have to say? So I want to demonstrate here that human life begins at conception. That's what I want to demonstrate. This is the point I want to prove. This is my conclusion. Showing it to you up front. Why do I say that? In case you don't know what I mean by conception, that word describes the moment that the sperm and the egg combine from two separate parts into one whole single-celled zygote. 
where the beginning of life starts. Now, there's four qualities of the unborn that can be determined and supported scientifically. Now, we'll use the idea of human life begins at conception. I will support with these four qualities. The first is that the unborn are alive. The next is that the unborn are human. Third is that the unborn are whole. Fourth is that the unborn are distinct. The first, the unborn are alive. Now, thankfully, in our present age, there isn't much pushback on this point because it's very easy to prove that the unborn are alive. The unborn grow and differentiate, meaning that they grow in size and complexity. They start as this tiny, tiny single cell. They grow into a group of cells. They grow into a group of cells that begins to differentiate. They grow fingers, fingernails, eyes, organs, skin, all these limbs happening so very quickly. That doesn't happen if something's not alive. Now, the growth and differentiation is also self-directed. There's nobody piecing that together, except maybe God, if you want to use that language the psalmist uses in Psalm 139. But the, ungrow, the uh, unborn grow based on their own direction. Now, yes, the mother is directing, or no, sorry, not directing, the mother is providing the environment and nutrition, but she's not diligently assembling the child inside of her. The child's doing that all on its own. To show this, I have a diagram here that shows the first couple of months of development in the womb. That's a crazy amount of growth. We start at 28 days, end at 56 days. In that short period of time, it grows from this tiny shrimp-looking thing to something that I think we should all be able to recognize as human, as a child. I could add more here. I could talk about the process of metabolism, the law of biogenesis. We're talking about cellular activity and life at the cell level, but there's not much pushback here, and I think we can all agree that the unborn are alive. Just to indicate this point just a little bit more, I've got a GIF. Aw, it's not playing. That's so sad. I worked so hard to make that play. Oh, it's because it's transitioned from Google Slides to uh, ProPresenter. Anyway, imagine that child's yawning. This is a 4D ultrasound. That's where an ultrasound takes several images and makes a video out of them. There's a 25-week-old child yawning in the mother's womb. It's, it's amazing, the, the gift that ultrasound has given us. Now, this thing, it's not only alive, but two, it's human. The second, the unborn are human. Now, there is a lot of pushback here. So I'm going to spend a majority of my time defending this point. First, I want to engage the opposition. A lot of times you hear this. But a zygote, or embryo, or fetus, whatever scientific term, that's not human. It couldn't possibly be. It's a zygote, or an embryo, or a fetus. Well, here's the thing. Those words, while big and scary and scientific, simply describe humans at different stages of life and development. We just lack great mental pictures for what these things represent. They're terms just like newborn, infant, pre, uh, prenatal, or not perinatal, whatever the newborn, uh, whatever a preemie is, premature child, um, <clears throat> toddler, kid, teen, geriatric, octogenarian, all these different terms describe people at different stages of life and development. The zygote's the earliest stage, embryo comes after, fetus comes after. Now, we, would, we should agree that it would be preposterous to say a toddler is not a human on account of them being a toddler. The same is true that a zygote isn't human on account of it being a zygote. We need more. We need more than just the scientific term. The next opposition argument is this, that they only become human at, at, at this milestone, whether it's the heartbeat, brain activity, viability, birth, etc. 
This argument has two issues. The first being that these milestones are very arbitrary. They don't happen at exactly the same time in development for every human. Some, like viability, shift wildly depending on where you are, what the care your hospital has to offer, and even the child. Over in very poor places in the world, at nine months, you might not even be viable because you're born in a place that has no care for a child. Here in the United States, we can do 25 weeks, I believe. I don't remember that fact. 25 weeks, I believe, is about as early as we can do. Viability is huge, wildly shifting. The same is true for all of these. It's arbitrary. It doesn't all happen at the same time. This isn't a clear demarcation line. And I want to show later why conception is. Secondly, these aren't universal across all human experience. For instance, and this is one that you should have a great mental picture for, if anyone remembers watching the Bills-Bengals game at the start of the year, you remember what happened. Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, made a tackle, stood up, and collapsed on the field. He collapsed on the field because his heart stopped. He no longer had a beating heart. He suffered from cardiac arrest, which literally just means heart stop. Now, because his heart stopped beating, did that mean he wasn't human? We certainly didn't think so. We certainly thought that he was human. That's why there was such a great effort from the uh, wonderful people over at UC Health and the trainer who got out there and did CPR on him. But why would we use something like heartbeat or brain activity or viability or any of these other, like the ability to feel pain, having limbs? These things aren't universal to the human experience. Why would we use them as whether or not someone is human? The third pushback is this. Well, they don't look human. If you remember that, that slide of human development, that first row didn't look exceedingly human. But is looking human enough? Is that a scientific looking human? Is that a scientific term? Is that a scientific and measurable thing? A lot of what people mean is, well, they're, they're just too small. Well, is this woman too small? This is Gioti Amaj, or Amgi, I don't know. I'm not great at pronouncing those names. <clears throat> but she is the world's shortest woman, standing at two foot one. Very small. She is smaller than every other adult human on the planet. Is she too small to be human? No. Size isn't really a great measure of some, whether or not someone's human. Well, I mean, have you seen... The, the first few weeks of development, that thing does not look human in any way. Well, neither does this kid. I'm sorry if this is a little graphic. This is Zaid Garcia. This is a 16-year-old boy who's severely burned as a child. Over 80% of his body is covered in burn scars. He's missing his nose, his hands, his ears. Skin has grown over his eyes, so he is blind. Is he human? He certainly doesn't look like a typical human. But yes, he is human. So if we're going to define what is and isn't human based on appearance, then we're going to need way better, a way better system of doing that. Now, in science, we kind of have a system of doing that. This is called taxonomy. This is a scientific measure of how things look, their form and function. So in tax, taxonomy, it's the science of grouping organisms together based on uh, their form and their function, how they look, how they're assembled, and how they act, what they do. I've got a chart here that, that kind of shows a bit of how taxonomy works. Ignore the typos. I think this was made by a student, but it's great, the visuals. 
So this shows how we start at the right, things are very broad, this is called the domain, it's like, this is the eukarya domain, if you have a nucleus, you're in it. And it gets more and more and more specific. I don't know why, this is the black bear, but that looks like a black lab at the top. Again, ignore it, a student made it. That's a black bear at the end. All the way, going from uh, item to item, grouping it more and more specifically, ending it black bear. This is the scientific uh, process of uh, taxonomy. We do this through a, a method called morphology, which examines the form and function of organisms. We've been doing this for a long time. Uh, we actually have a next slide shows this is the taxonomic chart that shows the classification of humans or homo sapiens, that's our species name. Now according to the science of taxonomy, we are characterized by our higher cognitive abilities, the ability to walk on two feet, we lack a thick coat of fur or hair around the body, and a, a few other traits. I don't want to bog us down with that. But, but here's the problem with taxonomy. It relies on generalizations. And, and exceptions kind of throw things out of whack. We don't, we don't do taxonomy based on the exceptions. We look at generally, what does the typical example of the species do? What does it look like? Like humans, we all walk on two feet, except for the ones that don't. So taxonomy, while being a, a much better method of characterizing what is and isn't human or what is and isn't a black bear or what is or isn't a parrot, still doesn't work in every individual case. Thankfully, there is a newer science that does. That is the science of genetics. So thanks to genetics and the discovery of DNA, we can clearly state what a human being is. And that's thanks to the genetic code. There's a chart here. This is the human karyotype. This, these are your chromosomes. This is the typical human chromosome set. We have 46, that's two sets of 23. Now, a chromosome, that's just a compilation of DNA. Basically, think of a chromosome or like a book. It's got a book on how your body should act. It determines things like your hair color, your eye color, depending on grouping sets of DNA. We can call or call genes. We can call those chapters in the book. The karyotype, that's, that's the human library. This is, this is us. Now, even here, there are some exceptions. You know, maybe you'll have an extra chromosome, or maybe you'll be missing one of your sex chromosomes. But it's all around this pattern, and it's all distinctly human. It's because of this that if we find a pool of blood, we can take a sample and determine it's human, it's dog, it's deer. We can know if it's a male or female. We can know specific traits about it. It's uh, thanks to DNA. Now, this set of chromosomes here is present at the moment of conception. After the egg becomes fertilized, two individual sets of chromosomes combine to become one. It becomes pool whole human. This is human DNA. This is present from the very moment that the egg and sperm combine. Now you may push back here and rightly push back and say, well, just because a cell is a human cell doesn't make that a human. Like if I were to pluck out one of my hairs, it has all the same DNA. Every cell in there has the same DNA as the rest of the cells in my body, give or take a few base pairs. But it's not a whole human. Now, part of that's because it's not alive. Hair, once it leaves your body, is dead. And the other part is because it's not whole. The third, the unborn are whole. Now, here's what I mean by whole. I mean that all the necessary internal components for sustained life are present. This doesn't mean that they have all the features 
of a typical adult human. For instance, if I were to lose my hand, my hand would be cut off, I would still be a whole human in the sense that I would have all the necessary internal components to sustain my life. My hand, however, would not be a whole human. Shortly after it's cut off, there'd still be some cellular life in there. It would then dry up and die. It's not a whole human. Also, by internal components, I mean that it has everything inside it to sustain life, provided that external factors like nutrition and shelter are provided. This is true of adult humans, too. If I pick you up, if you know food and no water, and I drop you in the middle of the Sahara Desert, you are still a whole human, just one that's probably going to die very soon. Now, the unborn are whole from the moment of conception. Let me show you. This chart shows the combining of a sperm and an egg, neither of which are whole because they have half of the normal human DNA, making them what's called haploid. They have 23 chromosomes instead of the full 46. When they combine, now obviously there's not 46 up there because that would be a lot to pack into that little diagram. When they combine, all human DNA is present, making them genetically whole. But they're not just genetically whole, they're whole on another level. This next chart, which is some big science, I'm gonna try and break it down. This is a chart that shows stem cells which are basically the cell equivalent of wild cards. They can become different types of cells based on need and stimuli. Now you have some stem cells in your body right now. These are the ones on this third level called multipotent stem cells. You've got especially the ones in your, your bone marrow, these hematopoietic, proud of myself for knowing that term, stem cells that produce different kinds of blood cells. This happens pretty frequently inside your own body, but there's a type of stem cell you do not have in your own body. That's the one all the way at the top. It's called a totipotent stem cell. That just means that it can become any kind of cell, skin cell, hair cell, organ cells, muscle cell, any kind. It's the best and truest wild card. These totipotent cells only exist in the human sense in one instance, and it's the very early stages of human development. From the moment that zygote is fertilized, that becomes a totipotent stem cell, capable of becoming anything. This is how that single cell grows into a six foot three man like myself, because it has the potential to become anything. It is whole. It has everything it needs to become a fully fledged human, provided that there are no external factors that come and get in its way. Fourth item here, the unborn are distinct. By distinct, I mean that the unborn are separate and unique entities from their mother. We know this because the unborn grow a separate body and have a completely unique genetic code and will grow up to have a unique personality and appearance. Even in the case of identical twins, there are still slight differences in their appearance as well as differences in personality, despite sharing an overwhelming majority of the DNA. Now, every human from the moment of conception is totally and completely unique with a genetic code that has never existed and will never exist again. They'll grow to look unlike any other human and have a completely distinct personality with their own interests and abilities. I was actually kind of curious when I was doing study on this about how unique your genetic code is. So based on the way that uh, your, your sperm and egg are, are produced, if they... Uh, you had a couple that had all the children that, or all the people who exist in the world, so they had eight billion children. The chances of any of those children, assuming they're not twins, being genetically identical, zero. The chances, or so the, the possibilities, different possibilities of uh, 
genetic, unique genetic potential in a person is two to the power of 6,400,000, which is essentially infinity. There's not a calculator I've been able to find that doesn't not put out infinity or error. Okay, so I, I feel I have proven the unborn, they're living, they are whole, distinct humans. I've established these four qualities, and now I want to use them to compare against other things that are often used as, as analogs for what the unborn are. I've got a chart here that will help with that. This chart shows these aspects and has different examples. The first is a kidney stone. An abortion is just like getting a kidney stone out. Except a kidney stone, it's not alive. It's not human. It's not whole. It can't sustain its own life. It's not alive. It's distinct. Like, you are not a kidney stone. But it's not human. Not the rest of those things. So the next. Like cancer or polyp. It's like getting the tumor out. That's what an abortion is. Well, cancer or polyp, it's, it's living in the sense that it's connected to your body. It's human in the sense that it has human DNA. It's not a whole. If you cut it out, it won't survive on its own. And it's not distinct. And if you do cut it out and it does survive on its own for a little bit, it won't grow into another fully formed human. Just a bigger tumor. Third, well... And abortion's like getting the tapeworm out. It's a parasite. The unborn are parasites in your own body. Well, here's the thing about a tapeworm. Yeah, it's alive. It's whole. It's distinct. But it's not human. But the unborn are living, human, whole, and distinct. Just like every single one of you in this room. Just like how every single one of you in this room came from the single-celled zygote. Now, this is all the argument I'm going to make on the science side. But I understand I'm not an expert on this. And you may be upset think that I'm not representing this well enough. So let me bring in the expert opinion here. This next slide, I've got a QR code to the, the uh, study you can read. They surveyed 5,502 biologists from 1,058 institutions in 2018, and they asked them, does human life begin at conception? 95% said yes. That's an overwhelming consensus. I also have a couple quotes from some embryology textbooks. This first quote comes from a textbook called The Developing Human, and it says, human development begins at fertilization. Approximately 14 days after the onset of the last menstrual period, when a sperm fuses with an oocyte, that's an egg, to form a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized, distinct, totipotent, whole, cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. The next quote comes from a textbook called Human Embryology and Teratology. And it says, although life is a continuous process, fertilization, which incidentally is not a moment, is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new, genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and the female pronuclei blend into the oocyte. With all this in mind, everything I presented, I think we can confidently say that from the moment of conception, the unborn are living, whole, and distinct humans. And if they're living, whole, and distinct humans, by basic human philosophy, at least the kind that we have here in the States, it's wrong to kill them, especially by bas basic biblical understanding. I want to engage with this on the, on the last foundation here. This is the, the emotional side. There's a great quote from an apologist named Greg Kokel. 
on the issue of abortion, and it says this, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. It's not a human person, it's not a living, whole, distinct human. You know, we have no qualms killing, getting rid of kidney stones or getting rid of tumors or getting rid of parasites. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. Again, remember my definition of the word abortion, Greg Kokel here is using a similar or same definition. But for the emotional side, this is where abortion gets difficult. There are a lot of emotional justifications that are brought up and they weigh heavy on the heart. What makes abortion so difficult to talk about is that unlike in many other cases of human rights issues or, or major justice issues, here you have two victims quite often. You have the mother who has been lied to, deceived, in a desperate situation, abused, whatever it may be, and you have the child. Or we can look at other horrible human rights issues like the Holocaust and say, well, the Nazis are bad, Jews are good. Here we have a very difficult situation. So it's important to engage these and to be kind and caring when we do. Now, here's an issue that comes up often in the emotional side of abortion. It's that people will quite often they'll create a false dilemma between supporting the mother or supporting the child and say, well, you only care about the child or you only care about it being born, but you don't care about the mother. The truth is it doesn't have to be dualistic. You don't have to just support the mother by letting her kill her child or just support the child by refusing to let the mother abort it. You can care for both. In fact, that's one of the pro-life mottos. Love them both. Now, we should absolutely, all of us to some degree or another, be caring for the women, considering abortions, providing for their needs, loving them, supporting them in affirming life. But even if no one was, abortion would still be wrong. The next uh, emotional opposition that comes up often is, well, what about the, the quality of life of the child? What if the child has a disability? What if the child grows up in an abusive environment? But it's not right for us to kill the child because we are afraid it will have a terrible life. There's a few reasons for this. First, because we are not all-knowing. And just because we believe and have every good reason to believe a child would have a bad life doesn't mean they will. Second, because the child's decision on the matter cannot be considered in an abortion. The child cannot consent to its own death. Lastly, because everyone, every person, deserves a chance at life. And there's one emotional rebuttal that comes up almost every time this topic is discussed. It's the one that weighs the heaviest on my heart. It's the one I have prayed the most about on how to present it, and it's this issue of what about abortion in the cases of rape and incest? This is truly where we have two serious victims, a woman who has been horribly abused and violated, and a child who did not ask to come into this world through that terrible act. And there's a sad fact about living in a broken world, and that is that we have to make, sometimes we have good, right choices that are hard causes pain, and that they're not perfect, 
the good, right choice is to not punish the child for the sins of the father. We don't kill children because their father goes out and does something wrong. We shouldn't do it here. But I understand and I appreciate the, the pain and toll that takes on the woman who has to carry the child. And that's why we should come alongside her. We should care for her. But even in that, that area of pain and hurt, it's still not right to murder. So I've addressed the arguments. I hope I've convinced you, if you weren't already. Now what do we do? I believe that we, as the church, are called to act. I believe this because the scriptures tell us so. Here I've got a couple. In Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, we are encouraged to speak up for those who have no voice. For the justice of all who are dispossessed, speak up, judge righteously, and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. James says that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their, desire, in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How do we do this? How do we take this evil that the world is doing and how do we address it? How do we speak up for those who have no voice? How do we visit those in pain and trouble in their distress? Now, I've got a few steps that we can take here. The first is this, repent. When Grant opened up this sermon series, he started with Jesus' very mini message in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I want to be clear about something. There's a lot of emotional baggage tied up in this word repent. You know, perhaps you think the word repent means feel bad. You should feel guilty. You should feel ashamed. But that's not what the word means. The word means to change your mind. Now, that may come alongside pain and, and emotional distress, but I don't want you to have pain and emotional distress. I want you to change your mind. I don't know where you were on this before, whether you supported abortion or you supported it to some degree, whether you were apathetic on it, whether you never thought about it. And I want you to see it for what the evil it is. Change your mind. Repent. This changing of our mind is the first step in being light in the darkness. Like Paul said in Ephesians 5, we were once darkness. We once believed the, the empty arguments of this world, but now we are light. Be that here. The next is to pray. It says in James 5 that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Take time to pray for an end to abortion. Take time to pray for the women who are considering having one, the women who have had one. Pray for the people in the abortion industry, that they'd have their eyes open they would be convicted, that they would repent. And as they are, darkness would become light. And pray that you would have wisdom and guidance on how you should respond to this issue. Three, take action. Be willing to talk about this and stand up for the unborn, even in your casual conversations. Consider this issue when you vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, not now at least. But consider it. Prayerfully consider the possibility of adopting or fostering children. Consider vol volunteering or giving to organizations that help women and the unborn. I have a few resources here that you can 
that can help you get an idea uh, of what you can do or that you can partner with or give to in some way to see that, that we are taking action here. The first are pregnancy resource centers. These are places that take care of pregnant women and mothers in crisis, and they support and encourage the mothers to give their children life, and they help with medical, financial, spiritual, psychological needs. We have one that we partner with often here at church. It's called Life Forward. I've got a slide here with a QR code that links to their website. If you want to learn more, you can link to that. Life Forward's a fantastic organization. They're a pregnancy resource center that is over there. They do great things for the women of our city. The next uh, resource, uh, I believe, is, has great information and, and can encourage you to take great action is Students for Life. This is an organization of students who seek to defend the unborn. They seek to speak out about the issue of abortion. There's a chapter here at UC. If there's something you're passionate about, I'd encourage you to reach out and consider partnering with them. The next is live action. This is a group of people that are uncovering the lies around abortion. They regularly engage people on the topic of abortion, and they hope to bring truth into the conversation. Lastly is a group called Abort 73. It's a group with fantastic information. They helped me prepare a lot for this sermon. And they can help you understand the issue of abortion and defend the position of life. Here's the last step you can take, and this, this is the most important. There is nothing more important you can do to engage the issue of abortion and to preach the gospel. I got a, a passage here from 2 Corinthians that says this. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced the secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Who is the image of God? Sorry. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God, whose glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we can present every argument, be willing and ready to care for every child and every mother, and do everything we can to engage people on the issue but so long as they remain blinded, by the, blinded to the truth because of the work of the enemy, there will be abortions. And even if we rid the world of the evil of abortion, even if we rid the world of every evil, if people still don't know God, that is an even greater tragedy. This is why we need to make an open display of the truth, as Paul puts it, so that light shines out of darkness as the light of the gospel marches ever onward. And this is the light of the gospel that the God of light saw the darkness of this world, the darkness of our hearts, and brought light to us. He looks on us, a wicked and evil people who pervert his creation, who abuse, enslave, torture, and kill one another. He knows all the evil we've ever done, even our most secret thought. He looks on us and has compassion. God, knowing our evil, knowing that we stand as enemies to him, that we abuse each other, we abuse his creation. Knowing that, he came as the man Christ, and he lived the life all of us were meant to live, 
loving, caring, speaking truth. This life that was marked by love and humility, kindness, mercy, and justice. And despite living that perfect life, he was executed as the worst of criminals. And in that death, he took on every evil thought, word, and action. Every injustice of the whole of humanity, and he paid the just and righteous consequence that was due to us. What we were supposed to pay. And dying in our place, paying our penalty, also we can have life through him. And amazingly, this God, this Christ, rose again, defeating death, guaranteeing that all who call on his name will have life and have it abundantly and eternally. Now, as I close out here, the worship team can come up. I don't know where you are today with God. I don't know where you are today on this issue of abortion. I don't know what you've done whether you've had an abortion, whether you've encouraged someone else to have one, whether you've performed one, or anything else you've done. But I can tell you one thing with absolute certainty, and that's that the grace of God covers any and all sin. And everyone who repents and calls on the name of the Lord will receive eternal life. I'll be in the back if you want to pray with me or debate with me. I encourage that. Let's go ahead and pray. God, I'm grateful for the opportunity I have to come and and expose the works of darkness. God, I'm thankful that despite living in a dark world, your light still shines. And I'm thankful that you don't want that light to just shine in a secret place, but God, you want it to go out into the world. You want this light to reveal truth. You want this light to reveal the evil of this world so that people will come out of that. People will come and know you. God, I ask that we would be a part of that Give us passion and desire to be a part of that. That we would love those who need it. That we would speak up for those who have no voice. We'd care for those in need. That you are good, righteous, merciful, and loving. We're so grateful for that. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.